Hi, I want to welcome you today to the Emotionally Healthy Leader Podcast. Great to be with you. And our theme today is leadership blind spot number three, uh, ignoring the treasures of the larger global church, ignoring the treasures of the larger global church. And we began by the first leadership blind spot talking about we give away what we don't possess. We just don't have to know time for that. Secondly, we talked about uh, last week uh, how we disconnect emotions from our spirituality, our, our discipleship, our formation. And today uh, we're going to go into ignoring the treasures of the larger global church. I, I, I love this. I, this topic is so vast. I generally make a few notes before I begin speaking. Uh, here I've got lots of notes. And so we're going to ramble a bit. I'm going to talk about a bit how I got into this but also a bit of history and 10 top lessons from one of the uh, greatest global church historians, a friend of mine uh, in, the, in the world today, uh, Scott Sunquist, and a couple of things I'm working on right now out of church history and how it impacts leadership and discipleship. So uh, let me begin uh, with a story that comes from a best-selling book called Educated, uh, written by Tara Westover. Uh, she grew up in an isolated rural Idaho uh, you know, area with uh, radical survivalist Mormon parents. And uh, she writes in her memoir all about her story and how her parents were opposed, for example, to public education. Uh, she didn't go to school until she was 17. Uh, her parents didn't want anything to do with the government. Um, and in this fundamentalist Mormon family, uh, her father was fanatically determined to keep her from all the brainwashing out there in the world and kept them very isolated and and uh, she believed and he believed her father that the American government and public schools uh, were deliberately brainwashing children uh, and so uh, all she did was study the Bible and even when she began to move towards schooling her father said to her the Lord is displeased with you you're gonna whore after man's knowledge and you're gonna incur the wrath of God and so when at the age of 17 she finally takes the SATs on her own gets in, gets into Brigham Young University at 17 uh, and she discovers for the first time there was actually a Holocaust and civil rights. And I mean, her whole life is transformed by learning a little bit of world history. She goes on to get a PhD from Cambridge in history. And here's what she writes a couple of lines from the book that I underlined when I read it this past summer. I was so struck by it because it reminded me a little bit of my own uh, background regarding uh, church history. And here's what she, she writes. She goes, I decided to study not history, but historians, she writes. I realized that what a person knows about the past is limited and will always be limited to what they are told by others. But I knew what it was to have a misconception corrected, a misconception of such magnitude that shifting it shifted the world. I'll read that again. She writes in her memoir, Educated. She says, I knew what it was to have a misconception corrected. In her case, it was something as vast as uh, you know, there was a Holocaust, there was civil rights, there was a whole American history, global history. She goes, um, I, I noticed like that a misconception corrected, a misconception of such magnitude that it shifted the world. Now, I needed to understand, she writes, how the great, cape, great, the great gatekeepers of history had come to terms with their own ignorance and partiality. And she goes, I realized that the history I'd been taught, dad could be wrong. And thus, the rest is history. Great memoir recommended to you, this best-selling book called uh, Educated. But the connection to me was, as an early uh, Christian that came to Christ at the age of 19, um, even my understanding of church history, a lot of what was floating around, uh, was just plain 
wrong. And I'm convinced it's doing great, I'm, it's doing great damage to our discipleship, the church, the leadership development, when we ignore the treasures of the larger church in the world and the history of the church as well. Now, I grew up in an Italian-American subculture here in the New York City area. And so the view of the world that I was raised in, uh, in particular, like many other ethnicities, was very narrow. We didn't trust people outside of our Italian-American heritage, even folks from different parts of Italy. Uh, and it was a working class world. I came to Christ at 19 in college. Uh, and I was very thankful that I, when I came to Christ at 19, although I was raised in, in very much a, again, a white, primarily Italian-American enclave, I came to Christ at 19 and immediately was exposed to not simply Protestants, uh, but also uh, through into varsity Christian fellowship, uh, African-American Christians and Latino Christians, in particular then later Asians. Uh, Christians as well. I did a mission trip to the Philippines and, and Thailand as an evangelist with university. But in particular, uh, when I came to Christ, there was, was a multiracial uh, leadership team in university. So I was immediately thrust into the history of African Americans here in the United States. I went back 350 years, uh, going back to before the Mayflower. And I remember reading books like the autobiography of, the autobiography of Malcolm X and Before the Mayflower listening to stories uh, of African-Americans and what it's like to be, what it's like growing up black in America. This was all new. And I discovered a richness of spirituality uh, in the African-American churches born out of slavery and oppression and suffering that was very life-changing to me and, and quite different than white churches I would be attending. And then I got involved in a uh, Spanish-speaking uh, inner city church that was bilingual uh, in our city. And uh, so I, I was exposed to a great deal of breath, even there as, as a young Christian. So I'm very thankful for that. And I, I was exposed to the global church and global discipleship and uh, learned a lot. And, and it opened me up. And then when I went to seminary, even and I went to seminary, even though the emphasis was primarily on the Protestant Reformation and the Puritans, uh, and I would say it was, it was minimally global. Now it's changed, fortunately. Uh, the time we spent in historical theology and systematic theology uh, was primarily where Roman Catholics and Orthodox were off doctrinally from Protestant theology on, on a number of minor details. And I would say they were over-focused at that time, but it was a classic Western seminary education that I received in the 1980s, and I'm grateful for it. Fortunately, one of my closest friends in seminary uh, was uh, went on to get his PhD in missiology and ecumenics and church history, and he eventually became was a professor in Singapore and then Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. He's now and then Fuller Theological Seminary. He's now the president of Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, and uh, Scott Sunquist. And my friendship with him over 36, 37 years has been very transforming, just for me because he's been exposing me to everything he's been studying and researching. Um, from Syriac Christianity to what's been going on in Asia Christianity. And, the, and he's written a number of excellent books like The History of the World Christian Movement, Volume 1 and Volume 2, recommended to you. But I was very blessed uh, over these decades to be immersed in uh, you know, a gl the global church uh, and, her, and her history. But it wasn't until 2003, actually, uh, in my own journey, as I was wrestling with the shallowness of our church and discipleship and the limits of discipleship within the Protestant tradition, which is all I was pretty much drawing from up to that point. And I took a four-month sabbatical uh, and actually then experienced uh, some of the riches of church history. 
in particular monasticism, uh, that's when the whole shift happened to me. And I remember going to Taizé in France, which is an, uh, a community, ecumenical community of Roman Catholic, Protestants, and Orthodox believers who came together after World War I and World War II to form a community, and instead of killing each other in Europe, that actually uh, bear witness to the unity of the church that Jesus called, talked about in John 17. Now, it's interesting. I'd read a lot about history. I'd read a lot about the global church, but nothing transformed me more than that four-month sabbatical living it, experiencing it. Um, and I think that was, I don't, that was the moment of a significant shift in my uh, practical leading and discipleship, uh, not just for my own life and our church, but all of now what we call emotionally healthy discipleship. And I was asked recently by a young leader in his mid-30s, why do you think the church is in decline in our day? And I laughed and I just said, well, you're sadly mistaken. The church is not in decline. The church is exploding. It's experiencing perhaps its fastest growth in human history. And I said to him, are you aware that there's 600 million Christians south of the Sahara Desert in Africa? And that number is supposed to grow to a billion by the year 2050? And that doesn't count the exploding church in Asia and Latin America. And, and I said to him, I said, the church in, that's declining, yes, in Europe and North America, uh, is only a very small fraction of the larger work that God is doing in the world. And it's much like the, uh, uh, you know, the 21 Coptic Christians who were martyred on a Libyan beach in, on February 15th of 2015. Uh, you know, it was, it was broadcast on YouTube and by ISIS. But if you think about those 21 Coptic Christians, and I've had people ask me about them and be, uh, you know, concerned, what is this Coptic Christianity? Is it really... Uh, valid because they know so little about the Orthodox churches in other parts of the world. And, and really the question is how many churches in the United States can produce 21 workaday people who will die for their faith in Christ? That's the question. And versus, you know, we want to be learning from the global church, not sitting there in judgment. And so I, I, I invited my young friend to experience the overview effect. And the overview effect, it, it refers to the, the powerful life-changing effect experience that astronauts had when they when they saw Earth from space for the first time. When they went to the moon, Apollo 8, uh, beginning in 1968, uh, it wasn't so much the shock of landing on the moon. It was when they looked back at Earth and it, the awesomeness of seeing this, this little ball hanging in space uh, was transformative to them. And it, it's been called since then the overview effect because it transformed how they saw the divisions of countries and languages and cultures and politics, and they realized that's not what defines the planet. They observed, and what happened, they, they observed the larger picture of the profound interconnectedness of all of life on the planet. And, and here's some things that, for example, the astronauts said. They said, <coughs> they said you develop a, a constant, instant global consciousness, a people orientation, an intense satisfaction with the state of the world, you find out there on the moon that international politics looks so petty. And another astronaut wrote, the world itself looks cleaner and so much more beautiful. Maybe we can make it that way, the way God intended it to be, by giving everyone eventually that new perspective from out of space. And uh, he said, suddenly, one of the, another, the co a cosmonaut from Russia said this, suddenly you get a feeling you've never had before that you're an inhabitant of the earth and it elicited, elicits a deep emotional response. In the same way, my, my hope and prayer on this little podcast today is to give you an overview effect, to step back and look at the global historical church as God sees it, 
uh, and let it be transformative in your own life. Because when God sees the church in the world, he sees one church that spans continents, cultures, ethnic groups, languages, and denominations. And uh, and that church is so incredibly diverse with a long history. Now, you've been born, as you're listening to this, into a church where you came to Christ in a particular country, in a particular time in history, in a particular church tradition or stream. Uh, but the church of Jesus Christ is cross-racial. It's ecumenical, which means global. It's Catholic with a small c, which means it's universal. And it's international. And that has shaped uh, the church from the beginning. Uh, again, just for example, and I've mentioned this in a number of podcasts before, that in Africa, for example, uh, comes the birth of monasticism, as we know it. Uh, that spread from Africa all through Europe and the rest of the world. The birth of early Christian doctrine and, and, and the European university, and so few people know that. And that's why I, I made such an effort as we developed the Emotional Healthy Discipleship course for the church around the world was to pull in riches from the global church and the historical church uh, and the devotionals, the uh, spirituality and the emotional relationships day-by-day books have specifically citations from people uh, in different uh, that people never heard of before, uh, and I often get complaints. What's interesting, I get complaints from, uh, of course, many Protestants. Why are you quoting Catholics and Orthodox? I get complaints from Orthodox churches. Why are you quoting, you know, non-Orthodox people? I get complaints from Roman Catholic folks who say, Why are you quoting these folks that we don't know about that are Protestants? And and again, judge not, lest ye be judged. We want to respect, have a deep respect for people from different Christian traditions than us, without compromising our own. So again, I came to faith in Jesus through uh, the Protestant evangelical movement, uh, primarily charismatic, and that traces their roots 500 years to the Reformation of Luther and Calvin and the Puritans, and then the great awakenings of the 18th and 19th century of Edwards and Finney and Wesley and William Seymour. And, you know, our great riches of, of evangelicalism, which is a commitment to lead people to Jesus and actively reaching the world and a deep commitment to scripture and the cross. And I love our stream. And uh, but we're very busy. We're a very active stream, and we're not very good at slowing down. And it was my exposure to the larger church, in particular uh, monastics, that really shifted me. And I realized, oh, there's a lot of riches out here outside our traditions, and you can draw from the wider church without losing your own distinctives and gifts. Another way to look at it is we're like the 12 tribes of Israel, the church globally, and we are one of the tribes. But there's 12 tribes, and, and they're different. But there's really three, or some would argue four, main branches of Christianity in the world today. Uh, you have the Roman Catholic Church. You've got the Protestant Church. You've got the Orthodox Churches, located primarily in the East. Although they're here as well in the West. I'm talking about the Coptic Church, the Syrian Church, the Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Armenian Church. The Church is located in Iraq and Iran and the Arab world. Uh and then, of course, we have the, the fourth branch, which some would argue is that the independent uh, churches of which are exploding in Africa, China, and Brazil that seem to have just been birthed out of the Holy Spirit. They're called spiritual churches. And uh, it's just one of the main stories of the 20th century, this massive explosion of a apparently a fourth branch. Scholars are still discussing that. But remember, for the first 1,054 years, there was only one church, one holy Catholic, that is universal church. And when problems or divisions presented themselves, they would gather from the five major cities of the Roman, and then it was called the Byzantine Empire. They came from Alexandria, Egypt, Rome, Jerusalem, Antioch, and Constantinople. And they would have these church-wide councils, and they would sort out thorny issues such as 
God as Trinity, three in one, and Jesus being fully God and fully human. And, uh, and, and so out of that came what we call today the, the Nicene Creed, uh, which is so important that defines biblical faith and has for the last 1600 years. It was established in 325 uh, AD. And these bishops met in Constantinople then in 381 to actually revise and expand it. And we have now a final version of the Nicene Creed. And uh, if you don't believe it, even if you've never read it, it is orthodoxy. And that uh, of orthodox doctrine, it kind of defines, it gives parameters. And so, so the not just the, 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 the New Testament church, it's, it's the early centuries of the church, the first four or five centuries called the classic Christian period. Um, that defined that this is orthodoxy, this is biblical, you know, what, what, what biblical Christianity is and what scripture is saying. And, uh, and basically, if anyone disagreed with the Nicene Creed, you were considered a, a cult, you were considered outside the boundaries of the Christian church. That's why for any church to say we're the only church and everyone else is, is, a, heresy, is a heretic, you know, and uh, that is heresy. And they were called Donatists and condemned by the early church. And that's why it's so important that uh, we remember that uh, for the first 1,054 years, uh, while there were cultural and linguistic and theological tensions, uh, there was only one church, uh, and we're part of that church. But then in 1054, there was the greatest division in history, which was the Eastern Church and the Western Church split. And um, you had the Crusades after that, and uh, so the Eastern and Western Church split, and you were basically went to church wherever you were found, wherever you were living. Uh, and then in 1517, because of the corruption in the Western Roman Catholic Church, you had the second great church schism in history, which is the Protestant Reformation. And... Uh, and the Protestants, obviously, we, we place the authority. We place the authority of the Pope with Scripture, and then now, since then, uh, the Protestant Church has experienced over three hundred thousand plus splits, and uh, and so there's, there's a number of important truths that come out of this that we're part of something larger. We have our own genogram, and that the history of the first thousand years is all all of our history, and um, we have so much to learn from brothers and sisters who are, who are different from us. Uh, we have a genogram. Uh, we're not the whole church, and uh, that we have our own dirty laundry. Every every church has its dirty laundry uh, and blind spots, and we have to remember that uh, Protestant the Protestant stream uh, has its own, and I could go on and, and enumerate a number of them, but I want to move on to some of the 10 best, 10 greatest lessons of the church that we can learn for today out of church history, but let me just mention a couple. We had Martin Luther, whose anti-Semitism uh, was notorious at the end of his life, and uh, a real tragedy. We had Zwingli drowning of and torturing Anabaptists uh, who believed in baptism by immersion. We had Edwards, Jonathan Edwards and Whitfield who were slaveholders. We had the great revival of Azusa Street in 1906 in Los Angeles split terribly over race, black and white churches. Uh, and then we had the, you know, the Protestant missionary movement along with many contemporary evangelical leaders who really had very tragic marriages and family life. John Wesley being one of them. And and so, uh, you know, again, every branch has its shadow, uh, but we can learn a great deal from each other. And I think especially when it comes to things like slowing down and being with Jesus and monasticism. In fact, what, one of the great courses I had at uh, my seminary was with a professor named Richard Lovelace. Um, he wrote a book called Dynamics of Spiritual Life. And I remember sitting in his class, he was a brilliant historian, and he would show the movements of God by the Holy Spirit through church history. But they would also show that every movement, uh, when it was a bit uh, off doctrinally, for example, or had like a, a little weirdness to it, 
He said it wouldn't impact that generation, but it would impact the generations that would follow. And one example of that would be, for example, uh, D.L. Moody and dispensationalism it was a tremendous move of God, but his dispensationalism, uh, real and anti-education, uh, kind of what it kind of carried with it, his followers and that that followed him kind of kind of really pushed that in a way much harder than he did, and it really had a shadow side in American evangelicalism. So. He, he talked, always talked about being very thoughtful and careful and prudent theologically uh, and what we're building and how we're building it because you got to be thinking about the second, third, and fourth generation of that. And, uh, you know, that's why, for me, the EH discipleship is all about uh, theology uh, and we want to do careful thought about theology. So even, for example, right now, I'm, st- I'm doing a, a big study on the catechumenate which was in the first six centuries of the church, how they did discipleship and convert, how they understood conversion and discipleship um, in the early centuries in the midst of especially paganism, the pre-Christian uh, West before Constantine became emperor. They were very, very careful about how they did discipleship because of the persecutions that were coming. It was, you didn't know who was coming into meetings, who was a spy, who wasn't. Uh, but there, I'm, I'm in the middle of studying. I've got four books right here on my desk that I'm wading through because I'm asking the question, what can we learn from the past for the future as we're living in a post-Christian West about how we make disciples and leaders uh, and, and move beyond shallowness to the kind of depth uh, that and the kind of power that we saw in the early Christian disciples uh, that actually changed the whole empire. Uh, and so it's been fantastic. But I'm going to give you right now for these final you know 10 minutes or so, 10 lessons from God moving in history that uh, come from Scott Sunquist, my close friend, uh, who went to seminary together, who again now is the, has a PhD in you know, Asian church history and missiology and now president of Gordon-Conwell. And I asked him the question one day, what are the lessons we need to learn today on how the Holy Spirit has expanded God's kingdom these last 2,000 years? So what are the lessons we need to learn today on how the Holy Spirit has expanded God's kingdom these last 2,000 years? So here's a few of his insights. I, I try to bring it down to 10. Number one, he said this, look for life, look for the life of Jesus on the margins. Look for the life of Jesus on the margins. In other words, from Jesus in the 12 in Galilee to the surprising growth of Christianity among slaves being brought to the Caribbean in North America, to the church explosion among farmers in North Korea in the early 20th century, to, to the launch of the Pentecostal movement of Azusa Street, the Holy Spirit has always been moving in the margins of society. I was with someone recently who works for a parachurch movement that aims at reaching the elite. And he said to me that this, this was that they did this uh, with the understanding that if we can reach the elite in a country, that will eventually change the whole culture. And he said, now after many years, I realized that's not true. And history would say to you, that's not true either. Not that we're against reaching the elite, but look for Jesus on the margins. Secondly, be open to be surprised by the Holy Spirit. Be open to be surprised by the Holy Spirit that the spiritual churches, they're called the spiritual churches of Africa, China, and Brazil, have exploded by the Holy Spirit apart from traditional methods or missions from the global broader church. It's really quite fascinating. The phenomenon of the church going from a million in 1949 in mainland China to 100 million uh, after 1949 and communism takes over was a shock to everybody. Uh, and uh, same would go for the explosion of the church in Africa, which is a another area of study for me. I just it's so unbelievable to me. I'm looking forward to going to Africa 
uh, to talk with some folks firsthand someday, I pray. The third lesson of Scott was look for God's image, though clouded, in every culture and language. Look for God's image, though clouded, in every culture and language. In other words, watch for the emerging indications of God in peoples you might normally pass by. And I can just tell you uh, from experience of living in Queens, New York, for the last 35 years with people from 123 nations in our, in our own church neighborhood. And to me, it's New York may be a difficult place to live here in Queens, but the riches and the beauty of God in cultures and languages is just unsurpassable. And uh, his point is that there's great riches in the larger church coming through the prisms of different languages and cultures. Number fourth lesson of God moving in church history, of how the Holy Spirit's expanded is, cross cultures intentionally. Uh, crossing cultural barriers is indispensable for church health because it forces us to retranslate and rethink what the gospel means for those different than us, a, a gospel that transcends cultural, racial, ethnic, and national barriers. And I've seen it here in, in a very close-up uh, way by the ethnic churches that are even here in a place like New York City, because of language, they first come to the country and they create whether it's German-speaking or Chinese-speaking or Korean-speaking or Italian-speaking churches, but they become eventually in, encased in that particular culture and they're missing so much. But when you broaden out uh, crossing cultures, you see so much of God and his moving. Five, find a way to release women. Fifth lesson, find a way to release women. Women have been key throughout all of church history in the expansion of God's kingdom. Whether you look at Perpetua in the third century or Monica, Augustine's mother, who shaped who he was going to become. Uh, in fact, one of the most recognized Christians in the 20th century is this small woman from Macedonia that came to be identified with India. That is Mother Teresa. Sixth lesson is beware of money and power ruining the church. Beware of money and power ruining the church. That we, Whether you look at Constantine in the fourth century or to the Roman Catholic Church before the Reformation, or the recent scandals of megachurch pastors in the United States and South Korea, uh, we can observe the destructive fruit of money and power. The seventh lesson of God moving in church history uh, is discipleship has always been life on life and relational. Nobody's ever been able to improve on Jesus in the 12 and is demonstrating that God's way to make disciples is life on life, slow, uh, and the few individuals. Uh, it's not programs. Uh, programs are okay, we may create them, but it's always going to be life on life. Eighth great lesson of church history is watch migration. Watch migration. God powerfully used the migration, for example, of Europeans to North America in the 17th to the 20th centuries. He, uh, Asian tribes were converted when they migrated to Europe soon after the time of Jesus. Africans are now revitalizing the church in Europe. Uh, Latin Americans are strengthening the church in North America. And God's continuing to bring even more people to our churches in Europe and North America through migration today. Ninthly, we want to be open to Jesus coming to people directly, uh, not only through missionaries, churches, or people. Now, I didn't, I, I've heard this, but it wasn't until I actually ex saw it uh, when I was in uh, Malaysia. And that is that tens of thousands of people, especially Muslims in closed countries, have met Jesus in visions and dreams. Uh, tens of thousands of people are meeting Jesus in visions and dreams directly, uh, not through traditional you know, evangelistic methods. Not that we shouldn't use them, but it is an amazing, uh, amazing reality. And of course, if anything, uh, it shows the great power of prayer. And then tenthly, uh, his tenth lesson of how the Holy Spirit's moved through history is that 
remember, God has always expanded his work through very diverse churches and structures. The Holy Spirit has worked powerfully through very different wineskins and streams through history. Whether you look at Anglican churches and the movements in Africa, Pentecostal churches of Latin America, Orthodox churches in places like Syria and Iraq, uh, different monastic orders around the world, through indigenous apostolic and prophetic teams, just I'm just naming a few, I mean, it behooves us, it, it, it's an invitation to us from God in that to be generous towards others and open to people different than us, and new structures that God may want to use to reach our generation and the generation that's going to follow. Let me invite you, you know, as you, what is so much here, isn't there? And and uh, I, I want to encourage you to, you know, look up books like, you know, Evangelicals in Tradition and by D.H. Williams. The subtitle is The Formative Influence of the Early Church. I mean, there's just so much out there. Um, Marshall Shelley's Plain History and Chain, tra- uh, Church History in Plain Language. Uh, but we are, at least at EH Discipleship, our offer, and I think part of our contribution to the larger church is offering a uh, discipleship and a church culture that is global and that is generous, that I would argue more biblical. Uh, you know, And so uh, in terms of being open to learn from folks different than us while remaining evangelical. So let me invite you to check out emotionallyhealthy.org slash churchculture. Pick up a little little free ebook we have called Six Marks of a Church Culture That Deeply Changes Lives. Six Marks of a Church Culture That Deeply Changes Lives. Go to the website, emotionallyhealthy.org slash churchculture. Pick it up. Um, get started to kind of look at what that might look like. Uh, or you may want to check out uh, emotionallyhealthy.org slash lead and look at the EH Discipleship course. And um, you can pick up the online training videos uh, or what we call a, a bundle. But what it might look like to, to bring this kind of discipleship that's got kind of a, a global openness to it while remaining biblically orthodox. And uh, so it's called emotionallyhealthy.org slash lead. You may want to check that out as well. Uh, this has been great. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about leadership blind spot number four. Uh, and... Uh, then we'll kind of bring it all together. So this has been fantastic. Thank you, everybody, so much for being uh, with me on this podcast. It's been a joy. This is a topic I love speaking about. And actually, I love speaking about next week's as well, how we wrongly define success. But uh, God bless everybody. I pray you have a great day and the good Lord's uh, hand may rest upon you and that you may be the gift to the world that God intends. God bless everybody.